Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, we do have a handout this evening if you'd like that. I don't know that everyone got it on the way in. And so if you don't have one, as the men make their way to the back, if you would just slip your hand up, we'll make sure to get you uh, one of those uh, so that uh, you can follow along in our study of 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 3 and 4. Uh, this morning, 20 minutes went very quickly. Uh, so I got through one of the four commands uh, that Paul gives here as his final demands regarding the wisdom of this age. And so uh, this evening, my plan would be to finish the, the second one uh, at the end of chapter 3 and then to do uh, numbers 3 and 4 in the beginning part of chapter 4. And I think that handout uh, will help you. If you remember this morning in verses 18 through 20, Paul talked about uh, the need for the Corinthians not to deceive themselves. They must not deceive themselves. Specifically, they must not um, uh, underestimate the fact that God will uncover the wisdom of this age. Remember this morning I talked about Paul's perspective on this present age. Um, Then uh, we proved or went to two different texts in the scripture that for Paul proved that God will hold people accountable, even those who are wise in this age will be held accountable by God. One quotation came from the book of Job, Job 5.13, and the other one came from Psalm 94. There's a particular part of that text I wasn't really able to do much with this morning, and so um, I want to talk to you a little bit more about verse 18. So look in your Bible at verse 18. It says, let no one deceive himself, that's the command, if anyone among, among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise, I think that's true wisdom there, but then verse 19, for the wisdom of of the world is folly with God. This morning I talked about the wisdom of this age, but it is perhaps also, as I was reviewing for this evening, it would be good for me to briefly mention what Paul means by the wisdom of this world as well. Because I think he sees those two terms, as two ideas, as roughly synonymous, but it can perhaps give us even a little bit more understanding of what he means here. The word that Paul uses for world is a word that is often used in the New Testament. And uh, from my perspective, the word world can be used three ways in the New Testament. Um, Sometimes the authors of the New Testament use the word world to describe that which God has created, or planet Earth. Okay, and so the scriptures at time will speak of the world then as the sum total of creation or the universe. That's the world, okay? But that's not what Paul is addressing here. And that's not what what John is talking about in 1 John 2.15 when he says, love not the world. He's not saying we should despise creation. It's not like an excuse to go kick a tree or something, okay? It can be used in that way, but it's not always the sum total of creation, the universe. Um, It can also then be used of all of those people who inhabit the world or the planet. For instance, you could write down the text 1 John 2, 2. I think it's used that way in that text. 
And in this sense, I think uh, it's true that Christ died for the world. He died for those people who inhabit the world. Christ did not die for the planet. He did not die to redeem the universe, trees, animals, stars. He didn't die for any of that. He died for the world. What do you mean for the world? The inhabitants of the world. But then there's a third way, and I, I don't think that it's that I don't think that's what Paul is saying when he talks about the wisdom of the world here either. The third way of using this word in the New Testament is it can also be used to describe the system or realm that is ruled over by the devil. This is the philosophical system of all of those who ignore and reject God. In other words, uh, this way that the word world can be used would be describing what the devil has made out of the inhabitants of the world after the fall of man. Okay, and so this, in this system then, the devil is the main force that directs the system. And when John says in 1 John 2.15, we are not to love the world, I think that's basically what he's describing. We should not love the system or the realm that is ruled by Satan. And it's this understanding of the word world that can help us in different places in the scripture. So you come across a passage in the New Testament that says we are to be in the world, but not of it. I mean, what does that mean? I think what the author is saying there is we are to be among the inhabitants of the world, among the people who inhabit the world, yet we are not to submit to the realm, uh, their realm of influence on our lives. The illustration I use from time to time is we're like a surgeon up to our elbows in the contaminating blood of the victim. Okay, but when the operation is over, we wash it all off, and we do our best to be clean. We're to be in the world, but not of it. And so this is another way for Paul to to make that first point. Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you um, are listening to or endorsing the wisdom from this age or the wisdom of the world, the realm or the system that is ruled by Satan in this world, then you need to become a fool when it comes to worldly wisdom, and so on. So now uh, what I'd like to do is go on to those other commands. Okay, there are, on your notes, uh, there's opportunities for you to write in some of these. The second final command of Paul here is that we must not boast in men. Okay, right at the beginning of verse 21, the command comes out really clear. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. Here the second response that Paul expects from the Corinthians is that they would not boast in men. And he starts this command off with the word so, which is a summary word that means that he's bringing this to a final kind of emphatic conclusion in the text. And so he just gives this command, do not boast in men, and then he gives them two reasons why they can't boast in men. And that's what verses 21 through 23 are about. Uh, The first reason they cannot boast in men is because 
all things belong to you. If you're taking notes, you can fill in the blanks there. All things belong to you. Uh, All things here are actually then the church's possession. But what does he mean by all things? Well, he helps us here a bit, and he gives us a list of eight things that make up the all things that he's describing, or at least that are symbolic of the all things that are yours as a Corinthian assembly. The first three remind us of the problem in Corinth. He says, whether Paul or Paulus or Cephas, all are yours. So the first three remind us that they had the wrong priorities. They're boasting in apostles. They're boasting in these men like the church was subservient to them. Yet Paul says, all these men are servants of the church. They belong to the church. In your notes, I give you two diagrams. Uh, The first diagram, I think, is the way many of the Corinthian assembly viewed themselves and the apostle. It's a wrong view of apostolic ministry. They felt that on the bottom rung would be the Corinthian believers or the church, and that above it in authority and rank would be the apostles, and then above the apostles would be Jesus Christ. Okay, So that's what the Corinthian assemblies believed, That's what we might think as well, right? We might think, man, if there's an apostle today, I'd be a servant under the apostle. But what Paul does here is he actually corrects that line of thinking, and you can flip, I think, to the next page, right? It's on page two. The next drawing of these elaborate drawings I composed for you um, is what a proper view of what apostolic ministry would be like. And, And so Paul puts apostles underneath of the church, the Corinthians. Okay, so the bottom rung would be apostles. They're under, they're subservient to the church. And the church is under or subservient to Christ. And Christ is God's. He is subservient to God. So you see, the church is not under the apostles. The apostles are under or are ministers to the church. And so, Paul wants to correct their line of thinking. Don't boast in men. Says the apostles, they're they're underneath you. They serve you in the church. The transition to the second group. Remember, we've got eight things here, whether Paul, Apollos, or Cephas. I think the translation to the second group is a rather rough one, right? Or the world. And he goes through a list of things that seem in some way to be comprehensive. The world here speaks of the entire created order. It's all yours, Corinthian believers. The created order is yours. The words life and death are mentioned, I think, to show that Christians are not slaves to the whims of chance or the pressures of life and death. Even death itself will be subservient to the church, and we're going to find out here in in a moment why. But then he goes, or the present or the future. Things present and even things in the future are servant to the church. To me, it's as if Paul almost unfolds his impatience with this Corinthian problem. He's been writing about it for three chapters. And so he summarizes everything that believers may cling to or fear. Okay, in this big list of eight things. This is a deliberate piling up of terms that show the comprehensive possession 
of believers because of their vital union to Jesus Christ. And I think that would, of course, be a key for us. All of these things are, are ours. They're subservient to us. They serve us. We don't need to fear any of them because of Jesus Christ and our union with him. And so first he says, you should not boast in men because all things are yours, because you're connected to Christ. And then the second reason he gives is in verse 23. You shouldn't boast in men because you belong to Christ. As I would summarize verse 23, look there in your Bible. Um, And you are Christ, and Christ is God. I think Paul makes a very simple point here. The simple point is, don't boast in men. They're not your authority. They're not the leadership over you. Your head is Christ. You belong to him. So if you're going to boast in someone, boast in Jesus Christ. And so uh, they belong then to Christ as Christ belongs to God. And we must serve Christ as Christ served God. We must boast in Christ as Christ boasted in his Father. So this is a great reminder to them, a final challenge at the end of chapter 3, don't boast in men. Then we we turn over to chapter 4 in our Bibles, and he gives us a third demand or command of them, and that is in verses 1 through 5. I would summarize it this way. Don't pronounce premature verdicts on leaders of the church. Look with me down in your Bible at chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, and I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me, and here's the command. Therefore, do not pronounce judgments before the time. Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. See, Paul's given some of these final commands, and this one is, do not pronounce premature verdicts over the ministry of different leaders uh, in the church. And so it seems that uh, the Corinthians were a bit odd. I know that's hard to believe right, as much as we've seen, and it's going to get worse, okay. They're a bit odd in that some Corinthian believers were passing judgment on the apostles that they didn't like, and yet then boasting excessively in one that they did like, and claiming something like that this leader offered inerrant leadership. So, They felt every freedom to put some apostles down while exalting another. Okay, and so uh, what Paul will do here in verses 1 through 5 is he'll talk about his own apostleship and the way they should regard him before he gives them that command. And so what I do in verses 1 through 5 is I break it up into two parts, two sections, where Paul first shows them that faithfulness of those who minister in the church is important. That's why I take verses 1 and 2. He says, if you're going to regard me in certain ways, you need to regard me as a servant, as a steward. And then what's most important about stewards is that they be found 
faithful or trustworthy. Okay, so Paul's going to talk about his own ministry as an apostle and preacher of the gospel. Now, let me ask you just a few questions to get you into verses 1 and 2 here this evening. When we focus on different preachers of the gospel or teachers in the church, what do we normally look for in them for uh, them to be approved or accepted by us? What are we looking for? And sometimes we're looking for popularity or a certain personality or a certain style of preaching. I used to love uh, teaching one class uh, that I used to teach at Northland because it was right after chapel. And uh, we were supposed to talk about preaching, and so one of the things we would try to do in a nice sort of way would be to evaluate the preaching that occurred in chapel. Okay. And it was always amazing to me to hear the conflicted views of the students. I mean, some people would say, man, I really like that guy today. He was, that was like solid exposition of the Scripture. I mean, he exegeted those two words for 45 minutes. That was awesome. He told us everything that we need to know about those two words. And someone else sitting in the room would be, that was terrible. It was terrible. It wasn't exegetical. It's just like topical. And it was even worse than that. It was dry and you couldn't follow him. You know, and then the next day someone would preach in chapel and it was like all devotional life story stuff. Okay, never really got, you read a verse at the beginning and never returned. And so you would hear some people say, Matt, now that is real preaching. I just loved it. It was so applicable. It was so captivating. He, he drew me in. It was amazing. And, it, and then the purists in the room, you know, the guys who actually went to seminary afterwards said, that wasn't exposition. And what was that? It's amazing. We look for different things. We look for different styles of preachers. We look for popularity, degrees, personalities. You see, the Corinthian church is not the only church who ever became disillusioned with their preacher because of his giftedness. Perhaps some of the Corinthians argued uh, he's not charismatic enough in his delivery. I mean, how many times have we heard believers complain about the preacher or the sermon? Especially how maybe dry or boring that might be. But that's what we exalt, but what is the most important quality that God looks for in his ministers? According to this text, read verses 1 and 2, especially near the end of verse 2. What is God looking for? God is looking for faithfulness in the stewardship of the gifts given to the ministers. Now, to understand verses 1 and 2, you need to know that there are two terms that Paul uses to describe his own ministry. He says, first of all, we are servants of God. Uh, the word servant is not your typical word for servant, like a deacon servant or a slave servant, but it's the word huperetes. It means underling. Okay. There are some preaching who will say that the word servant here is used of under rowers in a boat, you know, that do like menial work. Uh, the problem with that idea is that is how the word was used about four or five hundred years before the New Testament. Okay? It was used from time to time in classical Greek of under rowers in a boat, but by the time Paul writes, it's not being used in that way. 
but the word means something like an underling. So Paul says, when you think of us, this is how you should regard us as underlings of Christ. And when he uses this word, he is emphasizing the menial, unenviable, difficult service that he was willing to provide to the Lord. I mean, this is an intense form of service that he uses with the word servant. But then he also says, and as stewards of the mysteries of God. You see that in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1? If you're going to regard us, this is how you should think of us, as stewards. Okay, and the word steward could mean something like a house manager or someone who would take care of the estate of someone who was wealthy. Okay, so Paul is like a manager or an administrator of something for the Lord. But what is he a steward of? Look in your Bible again. What specifically was he a steward of? See it? You can say it out loud there. The mysteries of God. In God's wise plan, he decided that Paul and some of the other apostles would be entrusted to dispense his word to men and women. And so God decides or decided to convey his revelation through the managers, through the stewards. And so Paul is an underling in reference to Christ, but he was given a very precious task, that of administrating the revelation from God to man. But, but really, the point of verses 1 and 2 is that for Paul, while you can use these words to describe me, what was most important then in the task of being a steward of the mysteries of God was that I would be found faithful or trustworthy. Uh, the word faithful is a very common word in the New Testament. Um, it could be translated that he would be full of belief. But faithfulness here means to be trustworthy in following God's instructions. It's the best definition I can give of this concept. Faithfulness is trustworthiness in following God's instructions. Have you ever had someone at work or home that you gave a job to do, and you asked them to do it in a certain way, and then you like give them an hour, or in some cases, all day, and you come back, and the job's not done, or they did it in exactly the wrong way. You know, it's like the complete opposite of what you want. I mean, how frustrating is that? Paul says, there's one thing that's important to me. In my job as an underling of Christ and as a steward of the mysteries of God, and that is that instead of that, that I would be a worker that filled out God's intentions perfectly. He wanted to be faithful. And so in verses 1 and 2, he shows us faithfulness is important. But then in verses 3 through 5, he talks about the Lord's evaluation of ministers is important as well. And kind of really just following the text here and what he was saying about faithfulness, he shows us here that ultimately he would be judged regarding his faithfulness. And so look with me at verses 3 through 5. It says, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, 
Do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, I think the key to verses 3 through 5 is to see that there are three different types of judgment that Paul briefly discusses in these verses. He talks first of human judgment, or man's opinion of his ministry in verse 3. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by human court. Here, Paul's saying it's a very insignificant thing to him. Man's opinion of his stewardship of the mysteries of God, of his service to Christ, meant very little. And so Paul's status is in some ways then independent of human opinion. Remember when I was an intern in my church back home, I served one summer at my church in Clymer, Pennsylvania. And my pastor taught me a valuable lesson that I need to keep thinking about all the time. He said, Brent, if you try to please people, you will never be successful. His point is, uh, everyone's going to have a different opinion. There are going to be many different opinions. You can't please everyone. He says, Brent, if you try to please people, you will never be successful. But you need to work on pleasing God. That is what is most significant in ministry. And so I think that's kind of what Paul's saying in verse 3. It's this very little thing that you would judge me or that I'd be judged by human court. Although often, if we're honest, that's the sort of judgment that consumes us, right? We care so very much what people think of us and our ministry. Paul says, though, it's a very small thing. And then in the middle of verse 3 into verse 4, he says even his own personal inspection or judgment is limited. Paul says, in fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, and I am not thereby acquitted. It's a little interesting here. As as we read through the verses, it struck me a little bit odd or wrong at first for Paul to talk like this. He says, well, I don't even judge myself. You know, it's kind of, you almost feel like he's being a little bit of a maverick. Okay, but that's not his point, because he says that he doesn't judge himself on this ground, that he's not aware of anything against himself. Basically, He's got a clear conscience, and so he doesn't find it important or significant to to act as a judge in this case. Um, And there are other texts in the Corinthian epistles where Paul calls the church, all of us, to examine ourselves. Can you think of any of those? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we talked about the Lord's table this morning. In that text, Paul uses a form of the same word to say, examine yourself. Paul says, I don't even examine myself, but then he calls other people to examine themselves, okay? And I think that the solution to this maybe apparent contradiction for Paul is what he is getting at is that we as Christians must never be in the place of Christ as the ultimate judge of our life. In other words, personal introspection and evaluation are good things But pronouncing a final verdict is foolish, even if that is over the nature of my own ministry in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I should never issue a final verdict regarding my own ministry. And so in verses 3 and 4, Paul is saying even his own personal inspection is limited. I mean, it can be good, but I think we have to admit also my own evaluation can be wrong. 
And so for Paul, it had limited value. But then in verses 4 and 5, the end of verse 4 and verse 5, I think the point where he's going here is he says that the Lord's judgment is reliable. He says in the the end of verse 4 that it is the Lord who judges me. And then later on in verse 5, Paul describes the judgment of the Lord upon ministers of the gospel as a judgment which is true. It's faithful. In particular, verse 5 tells us that the Lord's judgment is reliable and true because he has a complete knowledge of the facts and because he has full insight into the motives behind the actions. Look with me again at verse 5. Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose even the intents or the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation of God. On that day, the day of judgment in the future, the Lord will judge thoroughly and every minister will have praise from God. This implies that every servant will have something to give to God as a follower of Jesus Christ. But I want to think about the, Lord's, the nature of the Lord's judgment for a while. I said before, I think the reason the Lord's judgment will be reliable is because he has a complete knowledge of the facts and full insight into the intent, intentions or purposes of our heart. Think about even uh, some of our own cases in our world today and how difficult it is to determine what we should do with them. Thinking of a situation I was aware of a while ago of a mother who had taken the life of her small baby because the baby had a uh, terminal respiratory disease. And so imagine being a judge in that case, or the jury in that case, where you are trying to determine what happened. You know what happened. You know at least the facts. This mother took the life of her baby. But then what you have to do is you have to try to figure out what truly was her motivation and how much should that impact the verdict. I mean, the truth is this mother may have taken the life of her baby for any one of many reasons. It may be that she loved her baby so much she just couldn't stand, couldn't stand any more things like this. Or maybe that she was just worn out. She couldn't handle it anymore. She was frustrated or bitter in some ways. We, We just don't know. But there is one person who knows all the actions of our life in ministry, and he also knows the intentions of our heart, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is getting at in verse 4 is he says, there's coming a day when I will be held accountable by a reliable judge, and that is the Lord. He'll bring to light everything in darkness, and he will make manifest the intentions of, of the heart. And he gets to his main point in verse 5. Therefore, and this is like the whole command, therefore do not pronounce premature judgments on Christian ministers. I mean, if you need those two things, 
complete knowledge of the facts and the knowledge of the intentions of the heart to make accurate evaluation or place a verdict on someone, we might as well wait until the Lord comes. And then he will issue his judgment. And so Paul's final commands here, he gives these three things. Don't deceive ourselves. Don't boast in men. Don't pronounce premature judgments. And then finally, in verses 6 and 7, I'll take one minute here, he says, don't favor one apostle above the others. Verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. I've made applications to myself and Apollos. I've talked about uh, fields and houses and house managers to teach you some things uh, for your benefit, brothers. Keep reading there. That you may learn by us not to be, go beyond what is written. What does that mean? That's a difficult one. I, there are some commentators that say this is a contradiction we can never figure out. It's a conundrum we'll just never figure out till heaven. I think what Paul is saying here is he's, he's done all this with Paul and Apollos, and he's used Scripture throughout. Matter of fact, from chapters 1 to chapters 3, Paul quotes Scripture six times. Quotes the Old Testament six times. And, and uh, to me, the full weight of those quotations, what Paul is doing with them, starting in Isaiah, then Jeremiah, and ending in Job and Psalm, if you look at those six quotations from the Scriptures, The full weight or consensus of all of them is we should not boast in men, but we must boast in God. Or don't follow human wisdom that exalts human leaders. So when Paul says, I have talked about Paul and Apollos for all this time because I don't want you to go beyond what is written, I think he's basically saying, I don't want you to disobey the Old Testament scriptures that I've given to you. I don't want you to go beyond them and do something that you should. And then he explains that even further in the very next phrase there in chapter 4 and verse 6, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. What do you mean, Paul? That none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That would be disobeying the scripture. I don't want you to be inflated so that you would lift up one apostle over the other. Okay, then he asks a bunch of questions. For who sees anything different in you? Why do you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Paul asks questions like, what, what gives you, or I'm, I'm sorry, who gives you these gifts anyway? The answer there is God. What do you have that God did not give to you? What's the answer there? Nothing. And then, what, why then do you pretend that you are the original source of your own giftedness? I like to use these verses frequently in my, my home. Now, especially with my youngest, who is uh, convinced of his own athleticism. I mean, he will use words like dominate on the athletic court. How was it today? Great, I dominated them. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay, tell me what you really think, how you went. (laughs) And so what I'll constantly go back to Levi, and I'll use these verses, what good gift do you have that did not come from God? If you ever win any competition, son, if you ever win any competition, 
Who gets the credit for that? God, because he gave you those gifts. Here in these final terms, he calls the Corinthians to recognize that God is the only true source of all of the good gifts of New Testament believers. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this text of Scripture and the clear commands here. Lord, help us not to be puffed up following one over another. Help us not to boast in men. Lord, may we not be guilty of pronouncing premature verdicts over the ministry and faithfulness of others. Recognizing, dear Father, that you are the one, you are the judge, and that these people are truly servants of yours. Lord, help us to reject worldly wisdom in all of its forms. That's the New Testament church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.